Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, our legislative preview continues with a look at water policy. For several years, water has been a top issue for Arizona, with a population boom happening at the same time as a region-wide historic drought. Talk of how to ensure the state has an adequate supply of water is likely to be discussed during the upcoming legislative session. And one of the biggest issues is the future of the region's top water user, agriculture, and its reliance on a shrinking Colorado River. Much of the debate around the river centers on lower basin states, which includes Arizona and the state that receives the most water from the Colorado, California. Celeste Cantu is a member of the California Water Boards. She represents the San Diego region, which includes the Imperial Valley and all its agriculture. She starts by telling us about how dropping river levels are hitting her state. Well, it's the exact same thing because we look at the entire system. Um, Maybe some people don't, but I really think that's the most important way that you can think about how to frame the problem or the challenge before you is to look at the entire system of the Colorado River. Um, So all of that area, and then you include the water conveyance that takes it to California and ultimately Mexicali. So I think we need to look at it holistically. So everything we're worried about is the same kinds of things you're worried about. The application or the applicability to each one of the different players will be different because there's different magnitudes, there's different sources of other waters that you can use to blend or to enhance or, or whatever. But I think we're all looking at the same thing. And I think that's really critical because one of the things in the past that was the history is people weren't looking at the same thing. So everybody had their own take. And to negotiate a solution from only your own perspective is, you know, very frustrating because it's not going to work. And I think now more than in the past even, um, all the players are kind of looking at the same body of data and having a very similar Um, understanding of what the river has to offer and doesn't have to offer. Now, their take as to what it means to them is completely different, but we're starting from a similar point. Historically, California on the river was regarded as the bad guy. They were taking more than their allotment was allowing them to take, and the other states obviously didn't like that. That has changed. California is is not doing that anymore. And it seems in recent years, the states are starting to talk together and work together on this. Is that the wrong perspective that I'm seeing? Um, well, I've heard it described like that a lot, particularly in other states besides California. Um, however, I understand exactly what you're saying. Now, California would say it a little bit differently, uh, which I think it is slightly more accurate, even though I admit I am from California. I am from the Imperial Valley. We took what came via gravity flow that was already impounded. So we weren't taking it from anyone. And it was during the years where you know, there were very wet years. It's just a lot of water in the system. But the time came where that changed and they had to come to terms and take a haircut and, you know, realize. And they really developed ultimately a brilliant system, a framework that I think will inform and could inform all, you know, the larger river issue as we move forward into the 21st century. And that's the quantification settlement agreement that California did within a water sharing agreement within the state of California that transferred water from rural areas from the Imperial Valley to San Diego. 
um, and to urban areas. And, and that's not the only model. I mean, one of the things we've suffered from in the past is we kind of only look at our own problems and don't think about anybody else. The Colorado River is not the only river being affected by climate change in the world. And some people are doing a job that may not be a perfect fit for us, but we should be aware of it. We need to learn from others. You mentioned you're from the Imperial Valley, which of course is just over the Arizona-California border from Yuma. Lots and lots of agriculture. We've seen changes in the way water is used in the Yuma agricultural areas. Are we seeing the same changes? I kind of assume we are in the Imperial Valley yeah, also. Yeah, there are a lot of the same farmers, actually. A lot of farmers who are farming in Imperial Valley also farm in Yuma. And we feel, you know, we go shopping in Yuma. We play football against Yuma. But uh, yeah, there's been lots of changes. I mean, there's always generational changes. When I think of my father's generation versus my generation versus the next generation, how they farm is, you know, pretty radically different. Um, what we're seeing now is a lot use, a lot less use of water. Flood irrigation is like considered a thing of the past, and flood irrigation was the smart thing to do in my father's generation. So, I mean, it, we see all of those changes. Tremendous technical involvement, you know, with GPS. You know, a lot of people don't think of, you know, Farmer John as being the most innovative, uh, technologically sophisticated guy in the neighborhood. But farmers are, in fact, very sophisticated, very innovative, very accustomed to risk taking and trying new technologies and new processes and techniques. As someone who's been involved with water policy and looking at water usages in places like Baja, also not just the U.S., but kind of the end of the Colorado system, what do you see as the future as we deal with climate change and you know, it's going to take more than one good snowstorm to fill up Lakes Powell and Mead again? Yeah. Well, I hope the future is really changing our philosophical approach of how we think about managing water through the entire river. So for example, this might be a, a difficult thought because it's not the way we've managed water. Historically, we've kind of managed water as if it were gasoline, like gasoline. You need, you know, my community needs 10 gallons of gasoline or water and you buy it and then you have a distribution system and you deliver it. In this case, in our gasoline metaphor, you're putting it in your car and then you use it up. That's how we've managed water. In fact, water is not gasoline. The water we have on this world is all the same water we have ever had. It's just recirculating. So if we start to think about managing water understanding that it is infinite and it recirculates, then we realize what we're really not having, needing to worry about is the number of molecules or the drops of water or the acre feet of water. What we really need to worry about is the constituents, the pollution that goes into that water that renders it not available for its next use. And then figure out what the good housekeeping is to either keep those constituents though that pollution out of the water or figure out how to take it out and clean it up once it goes in. So for example, you can visualize high in the headwaters of the Colorado, um, the first use. So let's say the first use of water goes through a grazing area. And in doing so, it picks up a lot of salt. 
because cattle are very salty creatures. So the next guy says, hmm, this has a little salt in it. I'm not sure I really need, I like this salt. So I need more water than I actually need because I need to dilute this salt. But wonder if we had a situation, and that's that's a really fast scale. So this really happens over a long period of time. Not, right, we not- have a desal plant on the Colorado at Yuma that is used on and off. A lot of off, yeah. A lot of off. But, but we could do desal up and down the river and manage that salt. We can account, we have the scientific ability to account for every molecule that starts at the headwaters and goes all the way down to, until it goes out into the ocean, if it were to go out to the ocean. Um, We know that it evaporates, um, but it also transpirates, which goes through growing plants and they respirate it out or transpirate it out. Uh, Some of it sinks into the groundwater. Some of it is taken up by people and we know how to manage, we clean up sewer water and we can make it potable again. We do that in California a lot. Talking about doing it here in Arizona more now. It just takes energy. Energy used to be the most difficult thing to nut to crack. Now energy with solar, which we have an abundance of and Arizona does obviously as well. We can also do better housekeeping and being careful about what we put into it in the first place to make sure we don't over fertilize so there's not a lot of extra nitrates that are just being put in for no good reason. Homeowners are the biggest use of nitrates. You know, we talk about ag a lot, the largest commodity in the nation that is the most fertilized and the most irrigated and feeds no one, in fact, starves the birds and the bees is grass. So if we got better at that, that runoff that actually will end up in a stream someplace and will find its way back in a tributary to a river system, we could get more uses out of that water. So we need to start thinking about not how many drops do I have or don't have, but how many uses can I create with better management? So this is something we know how to do. It's done in other places, not at the scale of the entire Colorado River, but there's no reason why it couldn't be. Um, It takes money, like everything in the world. Um, I think I would always encourage people, better now than later. We have more money now because our economies have not shrunk yet. If we wait and let climate change take its toll and suffer the scarcity of water without making the adaptations, our economies will shrink we'll have left money to play with, and everything we do will be more expensive and we'll have less resources. That kind of management practice requires a continuum of management all the way up and down the entire river system. So we could no longer be thinking ourselves in terms of my municipality of Tucson, or my farm, or my whatever political you know boundaries you have. You would need to think about the watershed system itself, which if you pause for a minute, thinking about managing water within a watershed system makes a lot of sense. Right, you're not worried about just you and it's upstream and downstream from where you, whatever that division of you is. Right, so that requires us to think differently about what our responsibilities are and what our responsibilities are for downstream users and what the obligations are of upstream providers, let's say who are previously users. All right, lots to think about. Thanks for spending some time with us. Pleasure. That was water policy expert Celeste Cantu talking about water issues in her home state, California. To conclude this week's episode, we're bringing you a popular episode from AZPM's podcast, Tapped, which just wrapped up its second season. 
In this episode, Tapped host Zach Ziegler, who's also the producer of The Buzz, and myself dive into agriculture and water use while asking the question, why is alfalfa the most common crop on Arizona farms? If you've ever driven by a farm field in the desert, you probably have wondered, why are they growing crops here? Dr. Jeff Silvertooth is an agronomy and soil science professor at the University of Arizona. Standing with us in one of those fields in Morana, Arizona, he says actually, from an agricultural point of view, it makes sense. This is part of the Santa Cruz River Valley. We're right on the edge of it, and actually I-10 borders us up on the east. And before we come into what we call the uplands, which are non-favorable soils. So these are beautiful alluvial soils that we commonly utilize for agriculture in Arizona. And this is a great example of it. Soils, alluvial soils deposited by waters from the Santa Cruz as it was flooding over really thousands, millions, or eons of time. And these soils out here that are deposited in this area are great examples of that. In this area, Miranda, this is a, these are nice soils. They're, they're productive, they're geologically young, typical of Arizona alluvial soils. They're f- highly fertile and highly productive if we provide them with adequate water. And that's why we fully irrigate everything here in the desert. But it's a little bit of a misnomer to think all these soils that we deal with out here are just rock and sand. They, they, we don't have good soils. We do. We have beautiful soils if we manage them properly. Manage it properly. That's the rub. How do you get water, and at what cost, to fields like this one? This is Tapped, a podcast about water. I'm Zach Ziegler. And I'm Christopher Conover. Arizona's economy is traditionally based on the five C's. Cotton, citrus, cattle, climate, and copper. All are heavily tied to the availability of water in a state that's in the midst of an historic drought. So we're going to spend the next few episodes looking at those relationships. Up first, the three agricultural components, cotton, citrus, and cattle. People living in southern Arizona are familiar with the Central Arizona Project, the CAP. It brings Colorado River water to Phoenix and Tucson through a series of open canals. Farmers in Marana get some water from the CAP, but it's not the primary source for agriculture here. There's the groundwater that a farmer can have. If they have some wells, they can pump their own groundwater. There's, ir- there's irrigation water coming down here that's reclaimed water from the city of Tucson. And so that comes into this irrigation district. It's reclaimed affluent water, so it's been treated. It's good for agricultural crops that are not directly consumed by humans. And we're standing in the field of one of those crops. Alfalfa has been unfairly demonized in my view. One of the reasons it it does use more water, these alfalfa fields are here year-round. They're perennial they're perennial plants. So I think this, this field right here I was visiting with the farmer this morning is about three years old. You'll see we have this field set up so it's in what we call borders, like big flat sections. And these sections get flooded. Now if people criticize the flooding, but we can be efficient with that if we manage it well, which these fields are managed well. They're level, pretty close to dead level, and they can manage this irrigation water with time, time management, so they can put on just the right amount of what they need so we can do a good job and we leach salts. Other crops that are more like, say, a row crops have a tendency to pull some of those salts up to the surface, and an alfalfa crop helps us move those salts down through the profile, which is a constant issue of management in desert agriculture, not just in Arizona, but all over the world. 
Getting rid of that buildup of salt and minerals has plagued farmers as long as people have been farming in the areas we now call Pima and Pinal counties in Arizona. You can go 60 miles north of here to the Casa Grande National Monument. And there's, we don't know for sure they didn't leave behind written record, but based upon all available evidence, archaeologically, anthropologically, it appears that one of the things that may have happened was uh, increasing salinization of their soils. But plenty of people see flood irrigation as wasteful of water. Jeff says some of that is due to what those who aren't in the agricultural industry see as they drive by a field. It's like Dwight Eisenhower, I think, was in 1956, he made this statement. He says, farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. Well, now that thought extends over to this idea about people drive by, look at fields being flooded, so it's gotta be horribly inefficient. At, at the first glance, maybe a person, I could see how a person could think that. But in reality, what these farmers, they don't wanna waste water. It's the most expensive input we have, and we know we have to have it to survive. Pretty much now all fields are dead leveled, pretty close to dead level. It's a small degree of slope perhaps, but pretty close to dead level. And that means you can control the water distribution from the head where the water is introduced to the tail and from side to side. Otherwise, if you think about it, it's like having a, a, a unlevel pool table. When did we cross the line from, you know, bad irrigation practices that maybe use too much water to these ones that are much more efficient? When water started costing more, I would say I've been here almost 40 years. I've been at the U of A working as an agronomist, soil scientist in various capacities for, this is my 37th season here. And things have rapidly improved over that time and primarily I saw that happening when the water prices were, were, were increasing, becoming more difficult. You know, we realized that's a major cost in these all these irrigated production systems, the labor, the water, pumping the water, delivering water, managing that water. So it becomes imperative then to be more efficient with, with that resource you have. Jeff spent much of his career as an agricultural extension officer. That means he worked with the agriculture sector to help them improve what they're doing. That role now belongs to Dr. Ed Martin, the associate vice president and director of the Arizona Cooperative Extension System. He says he's seen a change in technology over time. When I came in 92, just about everybody was uh, flood irrigating. That is, you know, they have the canals and open up the ditches and just flood the land and let the water and gravity take its course. And that's how they would irrigate their crops. Uh, you're seeing a lot more people uh, switching over to drip irrigation. Uh, which is a higher efficiency uh, system. Uh, even the center pivot, some of the sprinkler systems are higher efficiency systems than the, the surface systems. The extension is trying to find ways to help with water and crop management. Uh, we're looking at uh, different types of uh, monitors for the soil, looking at uh, water holding capacity, and do we really need to add water, or can we wait one more day before we irrigate and maybe take advantage of the monsoon rains if, if they ever hit for us, uh, at least up in the in the Central Valley area. So technology is really the where we've been doing a lot of our work lately. Farming is often on tight margins, so moving to a more technologically advanced and more efficient system, which can save money on irrigation, also comes with a cost. For most growers, though, you're right. Um, it's really, it's hard. The, the best thing that they can do is maybe grow, grow a higher valued crop with the drip system, so they get more money per, per acre. But you know, what they're facing right now is either do that or 
don't don't farm at all because they simply don't have enough water. You know, many of our growers now, as you can imagine, in a state that's growing as fast as we are with homes, a lot of them are renting the land. And so for them to actually invest in a system that they might not be using in five or 10 years is, is very difficult. You might be surprised to learn that most farmland, at least in the area we're talking about, is rented. And like Ed said, would you sink money into improving a house you were renting? Heading back out to that alfalfa field in Marana, Jeff says that that's the case here. Most of this land around the Marana area, right along I-10, sold back in the 90s. I believe it was in the 90s when we had a big, big boom. And the big boom came, a lot of developers came in here, saw this whole corridor between Phoenix and Tucson as, as having growth potential. A lot of that land was bought up at the time. Well, the farmers sold the land and then they leased it back. From the, from the developers, and the developers are coming in now and saying, now it's economically favorable to us to expand this development. The housing development just south of where we are is called Gladden Farms, named after the farming family that sold it to the developer. So without water, you don't have agriculture out here. That's Dr. George Friswald, the Bartley P. Cardin Chair of Agribusiness Economics and Policy Extension Specialist. And what a lot of people look at is like water applied per acre, which isn't really that useful of a metric. People use it because it's easy to record and measure. You know, this, this amount of water was put on these many acres of the crop. But economically, what's more important is how much dollar of output do you get per acre foot of water? You know, like the stuff that you think of being grown in Yuma in the wintertime, if you look at, you know, you know out, do, value of output per acre foot of water, um, you know, the veggie crops, the, you know, the winter lettuce, you know, the broccoli, the cauliflower, the spinach, all the leafy greens, those things are just really, really super high value. And then if you look, let's say at a county level, it's like how much dollar of crop output are you getting per acre foot of water? It's like Yuma is like way ahead of, you know, the rest of the Colorado basin. Which brings us back to agricultural water enemy number one in the public eye, alfalfa. Why are we growing alfalfa in the West? Well, we're growing alfalfa in the West because we consume milk in the West. And milk is very, very, you know, fresh dairy products are bulky. So historically, they haven't been shipped great distances. So everybody in the Phoenix, you know, metro area, in the Tucson metro area, a lot of the, their dairy products are coming locally. Like a lot of you know dairy operations are between them in Pinal County and other you know other parts of Central Arizona. We keep hearing that alfalfa is public enemy number one now. Why? With the Southwest in the middle of a decades-long mega drought, states are facing the biggest water crisis in generations. Well, in tonight's Eye on America, we head back to Arizona, where earlier this year we reported on foreign-owned farms that are draining the state's water supply. That's CBS Evening News reporting on Saudi Arabia exporting Arizona water in the form of alfalfa grown here for its cattle back home. This was my well. And now you got nothing. Nothing but dust. Arizona cattle rancher Brad Mead says his well went dry. You can toss a rock in and it's, it's gone. But Saudi Arabia is not the only foreign country involved in agriculture in the state. According to a U.S. Department of Agriculture database, between 2016 and 2020, the most recent year in the database, 
27 foreign-owned companies owned 1.5 million acres of agricultural land in Arizona. The leader was Switzerland, owning more than 440,000 acres. Most of that was in Maricopa County, home to Phoenix. Mexico was next at close to 260,000 acres. Much of that was owned by Mexican mining companies, which were leasing the land out for grazing. For the record, Saudi Arabia owned 442 acres during that time frame. When it comes to alfalfa in Arizona, the USDA reports that 260,000 acres of alfalfa hay were harvested in the state last year. In comparison, all agricultural crops totaled 1.2 million acres, making alfalfa hay by far the largest single crop in the state by acreage. Back in Marana, Jeff Silvertooth says there is a benefit to growing alfalfa. They also have the flexibility of taking this crop if the markets aren't good, feeding it to cattle themselves. And then we can say well, there's two ways of selling alfalfa. You can either sell it on the open market or on the hoof. And there's a good market for beef right now. And so that's another one of the advantages. Again, according to the USDA, as of January 2023, there were at least one million head of cattle in Arizona. Whether it's the alfalfa hay they eat or the water they drink, cattle ranching is water dependent. Agribusiness economist George Frisvold says geography plays a role in where all those crops are located. USDA does these little like dot maps that's like so many cows, you know, and so many so many alfalfa acres. And if you look at, oh, where are the cows? Huh, the cows aren't very far from where the people are. It's like, where's the alfalfa? The alfalfa isn't very far from where the cows are because also alfalfa is bulky and hard to move around. So the alfalfa tends to be where the cows are, the cows tend to be where the people are, and the people like fresh dairy products. Alfalfa is really, you know, indirectly, it's the local food of your local food. And food consumption is tied to water consumption. We like our local foods, but if you're going to have local foods, you're going to have local water use. You know, we could import our food from someplace else and, you know, the water would come from there, but we're part of the ag water use, you know, because we eat stuff. When you start netting things out, stuff is being exported, you know, like to, to Saudi Arabia, but we're, you know, we're, we're importing rice. If we grew our own rice in Arizona in the desert, how much water would that be? There's no doubt that agriculture is the biggest water user in the state, accounting for more than 70% of the water used in Arizona. Jeff says getting rid of agriculture to allow for more drinking water, though, has its own set of problems. Do we want Arizona to vanquish agriculture and be totally an urban state? We're 90% urban today as a state population-wise. And I would argue, as I look at my kids, grandkids, and all of us in that respect, and the unborn generations yet to come, I feel like it's imperative for us to leave them the capacity to produce food locally. I look at that as a matter of food security. And I think coming after the pandemic, there's a few lessons we should have learned. I, I argue that all the time, that food uh, supply chains and disruptions in supply chains can be catastrophic. Like Jeff said, Arizona is growingly urban, or maybe it's better to say suburban. As of July 2022, Arizona was the eighth fastest growing state in the country, with a population increase of almost 100,000 people in the year leading up to that. That means more houses. So many more that developments are being held up because of a state law that requires a century's worth of assured water. Why are so many people looking to move to Arizona? 
A common refrain is another of the five C's, climate. We'll be talking about that on our next episode. Tapped is a production of AZPM News. This episode was written and produced by me, Zach Ziegler, and Christopher Conover. Our theme music is by Michael Greenwald. Visit our website in the podcast section of azpm.org for pictures, links, and more. Thanks for listening. That was an episode of the AZPM podcast, Tapped. You can find the other nine episodes of Season 2 wherever you get your podcasts. And that's the buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we take our annual look at the economy on a local, state, and national level. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR app. This episode was produced by Zach Ziegler and Paula Rodriguez with production help from Desiree Tucker. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.